Hello, everybody. Welcome to another Comic Source Comic Boom collaboration. This is your DC Spotlight for February 6, 2024. A bit of a down week, in my opinion. There was nothing that really stood out for me um, as, as being a really great book. Just It felt kind of kind of average. I don't know. What did you think of the week overall, Rocky? I can't hear you. Sorry, I'm on mute. I, I, uh, it was hit and miss with me. I, I thought it's going to be really interesting to hear your thoughts on Batman, the first chapter of, of Joker War, year one, chapter one. And uh, some of the other ones, I think, are a little bit underwhelming. I'm going to be doing, there's definitely going to be some ranting in our reviews this week. Let's put it that way. <laughs> you know what? I'm not even going to rant. I, I, it just, I don't know. These books didn't, they just missed the mark for me. I, I don't even have it in me to really rant about any of them, but. I will say that, you know, in a few of the DC anthologies, they've come up with some decent puns for kind of the titles of these anthologies. So we're kicking it off with an 80 page giant called the DC's How to Lose a Guy Gardener in 10 Days. Obviously, you know, it's a take on the, the film How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Just throw the gardener in there. The main cover is by Amanda Connor. It's got Guy Gardner with any number of. Uh, DC women, Fire and Ice, and uh, and Power Girl, and, and another. I don't. I I feel like I should recognize her, but I don't know who that last that last girl is with the black hair with the red or orange streak in it. I, I don't know who that is. I feel like I should know, but but I don't. So anyway, it is an anthology. It is their uh, Valentine's Day special, if you will. So there's a few different stories in here. Guy Gardner, How to Lose a Guy Gardner in Ten Days. Uh, the name of the. Uh, actual anthology itself I and mean, maybe they, they you know, it's by Kenny Porter he's the writer maybe they're like oh that's such a great name for a story uh, why don't we just use that for the the name of the anthology I don't know the art is by Nick Robles colors by Nick Flarty and letters by Travis Lanham then there's a red tornado story robots are red androids are blue written by Aaron Waltke art and color by Yvonne Chevron letters by Josh Reed there's a booster gold story written by Danny Lore. Art and Colors by Brant and Stein. Letters by Josh Reed. The Flash and Too Many Dates. Written and drawn and colored by Marguerite Savage. Letters by Frank Vitovic. There's a Constantine story, Never Been Kissed. Written by Alex Galar. Art and Color by Derek Charm. Letters by Farron Delgado. Plastic Man and Loves a Stretch. Written by Dennis Hopeless. Art and Color by Baldemar uh, Rivas. Letters by Steve Wands. Wonder Woman story, Say Yes to the Mess. Brendan Hay is the writer ML Sanapo does the art colors by Enrica Angiolini letters by Becca Carey. And finally Nightwing and Batgirl and date night written by George Mann pencils by Leonardo Rodriguez inks by Joe Prado and Jonas Trinidad colors by hi-fi letters by Carlos and Manguel. So th again, this was just okay for me. Um, there were some actual laugh out loud moments. So I will give some credit for that. <laughs> the guy Gardner story, Basically, Vicki Vale's writing a, she wants to write a story for the the uh, Gotham Gazette, what it's like to date a superhero. She picks Guy Gardner. She goes on several dates with him. He is his Guy Gardner-ish, and it's kind of funny what a jerk he is. Um, but, you know, kind of what you come to expect. And then, of course, in the end, you know, they have a bit of a falling out, and they come back together and decide to be just friends. You know, Guy's heart's in the right place. He just, he's a blowhard, and a lot of that comes from insecurity and, and that's just always been how it's been with him. So that was nice. It was nice to see Vicki Vale. I felt like uh, Kenny Porter got her characterization 
and Guy's characterization down pretty well. And the art and the colors were great. The Red Tornado story, I thought was a little weird. Like, so basically Red Tornado, he, he used to have more humanity in him. It's postulated that he's got less humanity now because he's been destroyed and rebuilt so many times. He used to try to have a relationship. You know, it's a whole Pinocchio thing. He wants to be human. He kind of let that go. And then we're told that he's basically going to be on monitor duty at the J, uh, JLA satellite because everybody else has Valentine's Day plans, but he doesn't have anybody, right? So kind of sad. And Batman's like, oh, maybe you can check out my Bat GPT or, you know, kind of like that AI, basically. Uh, it, you know, it, it learns and it grows and whatever, you know, maybe. And so right away, I'm like, oh, he's going to fall in love with the artificial intelligence that's the Bat computer. Then actually, to the credit of Walkie, takes us in a different direction. He thinks maybe he's going to reconcile with his girlfriend. And then it turns out that his girlfriend, his ex-girlfriend, I should say, is dating Will Magnus, uh, you know, the one guy that created the Metal Men. Um, but along with Will Magnus, she created this AI that Batman's testing for them. And the sort of the basis of the, I, I guess you'd call them computer programming, are based on her brainwaves. So it's like, oh, now it's a, a, a kind of a robotic version of the woman that he was supposed to uh or or tried to be with or whatever so that was that was kind of fun and it does say you know not even close to the end very cliche at the end the booster gold one he tries to run a a dating site that one was just kind of meh uh the the flash he's on his first date with iris west he keeps messing up and keeps jumping back trying to fix it over and over and over which you know flashpoint hello now you're jumping back just a few hours to try to fix this date I don't know. It, it just, that one I didn't really care for. It, it seemed like an incredibly dumb thing for Barry to do. It didn't seem like he would do that, but whatever. The art was fine from Marguerite Sauvage. So, so that was okay. And it was, it was kind of cute. I mean, I do like the relationship of Barry and Iris, so that's fine. The Constantine one, I, I really, that one was kind of really forgettable. It, he's a young kid he, with one of his friends. His friend's never been kissed. They try to run some schemes to get him kissed and, Clearly, Constantine, even back then, had some bisexual feelings because he's attracted to girls and he's also attracted to his friend. I, I really could have let it. It doesn't have anything to do with that. It just, it wasn't memorable and it was, nothing really happened. I didn't really see what the point was of that. The Plastic One, one probably my favorite story. Uh, Plastic Man, just, you know, like all, a lot of people, just trying to find somebody to spend time with. That one was great. Uh, the art by Baldemar Rivas was really good as well. The Wonder Woman one by Brendan Hay, that one didn't make any sense to me. Apparently every year on Valentine's Day, a bunch of people do things to try to, crazy, illegal things, to try to get Wonder Woman to be their Valentine. Like, if she's a she's a hero, why would you do something so illegal and so crazy to think that she's going to want to be with you? Like, it didn't make any sense. And then in the end, she decides, well, I'm going to, these people are all lonely I'm going to tell them, yes, I will be there Valentine. I'm going to tell them all to be at this certain place at this certain time tonight on Valentine's night. And they'll all get together and become friends. I, I, it was just, it stretched the, uh, the limits of like reality and, and, and anything that might possibly happen just to the utmost limit. I, I just couldn't buy it. And the Nightwing and the Batgirl one was very paint by the numbers, very forgettable as well. So overall, you know, the Plastic Man one was – I enjoyed. The Guard Gardner one was okay. The the Red Tornado one was okay. I thought the rest were kind of forgettable. Like, I, I really – and, you know, this is a, one of their 80-page giants, so I imagine it's going to be at least $7.99. I, I can't really recommend somebody spend $7.99 on this. Um, 
but you know, it, we know that DC and, and again, we're being kind of hypocritical. We've, we talked before, they should do more anthologies. They should do more anthologies. They do these anthologies and I'm, I tell people not to buy them. Uh, and you know, part of it is that these, a lot of these people are not, uh, creators that have had regular gigs on comics. So it's kind of a, a learning experience for them, but unfortunately it kind of shows, right? Like not the highest quality stories or art. I mean, for the most part, the art's pretty solid. Um, but yeah, these stories, meh. I don't know. Maybe you had a different take, Rocky. What'd you think? I, I generally am. I'm, I'm not usually a big fan of anthologies anymore, uh, mainly because I, I, I like continuity and, and I want stories to have at least the illusion of relevance to an ongoing sort of soap opera continuity that I love about DC Comics in general. And even if even if the continuity is wonky, I like I actually prefer a token attempt at it by a writer. I actually I actually sort of enjoyed the Guy Gardner one only because of what it says about dating life and what I hear about dating life because I hear about the crisis of young men about how screwed up the dating world is right now. And I look at this and I just laugh. Uh, Vicky Vale couldn't matter. I mean, talk about a complete, utter, total, manipulative B-I-T-C-H, and they think I Gardner's bad when, uh, I mean, how many guys, uh, you know, would go on a woman for 10 dates and not expect something, and he doesn't even get so much as a kiss, uh, and they think that guy Gardner's a jerk? Really? Most guys go more than three dates and not even get a kiss from a woman, and yet he tolerates that from Vicky Vale. She lied to him, she manipulated him, and yet somehow Guy's the jerk. Now, Guy did give her the Black Mercy as a flower, which is, of course, something that is... Uh, horrible! Horrible on every single date. Why would she want to kiss him? <laughs> Um, well, uh, what, I'm, what I'm saying is it doesn't make sense that he would even go on that many dates with her. It just, it just seems sort of silly to me, like that he would continue to go on dates with her and, and not, I mean, it just, I realize it's just supposed to be, a, uh, I guess we're not supposed to take it seriously, but it just lacked any kind of realism to me. I mean, that, you know, I mean, he, I mean she's not, I mean, she finds a reason of, to find him to be a jerk. And Guy Gardner is always a jerk to begin with. I get it. Uh, and at the end, he ends up being a nice guy because he, you know, uh, he understands, he forgives her for, for lying to him, which he did. And he understands that he's a jerk. Uh, but he, and so he represent he creates for her a bicycle that she lost when she was a kid, showing that he was, did in fact listen to her when he talked to her, uh, when she talked to him and accused him of not listening to her most of the time. There was a part of Guy Gardner that was always listening, but most of them, he was off in the distance fighting, uh, fighting, you know, doing different things. And so I thought it was, I thought it was interesting how it sort of played, played those two off against each other. And um, quite frankly, Guy Gardner is, he, you know, he's still a jerk, but he's still at the end, he does have a softer side. And so I, I would give uh, writer Kenny Porter some props for that because Guy Gardner, he was a dick, but also showed a softer side at the end. And Vicky Vale, Ever the reporter had no problem manipulating anybody. If it wasn't Guy Gardner she manipulated, she would have manipulated anybody else, uh, which shows the, the degree of her journalistic ethics. So I thought that was good because, you know, Vicky Vale doesn't have any journalistic ethics. Uh, and I'm not going to excuse her just because it's uh, Guy Gardner. Uh, so somebody's got to stand up for Guy Gardner. I mean, come on. Uh, now, having said that, the next issue, the next uh, story, which I think is actually potentially relevant from a continuity point of view, potentially is the Retronado one, I think is interesting. Him ending up in a, with a relationship with the AI intelligence of the Justice League satellite, I find to be absolutely hilarious. <laughs> so, I mean, he might actually end up with the embodiment of a woman that he was attracted to, the doctor, Kathy Sutton, who now is dating uh, Will Magus of the, of the Metal Man. The fact that he has some sort of relationship with the AI, that might even grow to something. This might actually be something we might see in future stories, continuity-wise. It's got some potential, particularly since AI is in the news, and particularly what you hear news about in Japan with these sex dolls and everything else. This is actually relevant. And so Red Tornado might actually get a little bit, uh, ironically enough, out of the Justice League satellite. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's actually something that I thought was kind of comical and humorous, and could be more humor in it, but it, was, it wasn't bad. Flash and Iris story uh, uh, remind me of Groundhog Day with Flash keep going back in time trying to get the date right and of course the, the moral of the story being that you know you, you gotta just be yourself don't try to you know screwing up showing your flaws on a date is, is the best thing you can do so I thought that was that was nice um, didn't really say nothing new but I thought Margaret Savage's art was pretty good I thought I thought she drew a fairly sexy uh, Iris Allen uh, Danny Laura's story in Booster Gold uh, where he, uh, he dates uh, the Marine Marauder 
uh, I thought was uh, uh, I thought it was fairly cliche. Booster Gold, uh, Booster Gold. I think you know the same old idea. He loses investors because he's uh, because he. Uh, uh, He's accused of drawing out a small town villain for cheap PR, and that's kind of what it is. I, I didn't find it pretty, to be particularly uh, interesting. They need a new take on Booster Gold uh, because the old take just it feels a little bit worn out. And it's the same take as always, just trying to his narcissism just tries to always gets the best of him. And I think I'm just tired of Booster Gold stories. That's all they ever come out with, and this just sort of reinforces that. But as a Booster Gold story, I thought uh, Danny Lore did do a good job, and I didn't mind the art by Ted Branton or Rosine. Um, uh, the Constantine story I thought was one of the better ones. I, I think for, for fans of Constantine, I will say that uh, uh, instead of the cigarette, he's got the lollipop because he's a young kid. He's, he shows some early signs of being attracted to both sexes because it's it's about the first kiss and his friend Gas who ultimately ends up being cursed and, and the victim of, of an adult Constantine's uh, deals with demons. It's sort of a tragic story, but it shows that in the past he maybe had some underlying fe feelings for his best friend. But I love how he had a scheme where, you know, Gaz wanted to get his first kiss and Constantine used the scheme as a young kid to, to rob attractive women of their wallets and their money. I thought that was hilarious. It was so cute. It's so easy to see a young Constantine doing it. Uh, and at the end of the day, he does have a heart of pure, uh, not, not a pure gold, more of a heart of lead, but he still cares about his friend. And there's actually, what brings it home is the end. There's a very darkness at the end where it shows the gravestone of Cheryl Masters, Cheryl being the, the, the woman that a young Gaz was attracted to. So I thought that was actually the most poignant. And that's Alex Gaylor was a writer. I thought that was well done. The Plastic Man story with Dennis Hopeless, I thought was... Uh, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed that uh, he's it, it shows uh, Plastic Man has attraction towards waitress and ultimately it ends up being revealed that it's this waitress that is probably the best date for him uh, and it shows him going through and, and having bad dates and what have you so I, I thought it was I thought it was good I thought the dialogue was good I thought it was funny it had some interesting parts I, I love the art by uh, by uh, Baltimore Revis Revis did, did really good on the art and colors and then his hopeless told a pretty good tale there I thought was, I thought it was fun Wonder Woman was more of a Valentine's Day special it, it's about you said the synopsis on Wonder Woman but it's really about uh, I didn't know what Valentine's Day was. Now, Valentine's Day means women, women uh, celebrating their friendship. And so that's really what the Wonder Woman story was. It was Wonder Woman uh, getting sick and tired of people hitting on her all the time on Valentine's Day, getting them all together, and then basically accusing them all of being missing something. Because apparently, if you want to be Wonder Woman's Valentine, there must be something mentally or psychologically wrong with, with all of us. And then she'll ground us all up and we can, she can put us together and we can all, we can all uh, you know, get together and, uh, and uh, you know, just be friends with each other instead of, God forbid, having the audacity to, you know, to ask Wonder Woman to be their, their Valentine. Uh, Wonder Woman once again reflecting her lack of ability to connect with man's world and being completely unrelatable that's why they call it Valentine's Day because gal it's gal it's Valentine's Day we can all be friends let's all get the women together and be friends uh, as opposed to build and establish a relationship for a character like Wonder Woman even if it is for an anthology uh, and finally date night uh, with uh, uh, Barbara Gordon and uh, Nightwing at the end just boring uh, boring predictable and uh you know, again, doesn't really say much. All in all, if uh, I'm not a big fan of these anthologies, but I think the one that might have the most relevance here is the Red Tornado one, as I think maybe in the future, the idea of an AI being connected to Red Tornado at some point in a Justice League story, I think that might happen. That's my prediction. Yeah, one thing I'll say, uh, so the girl that was, who showed, they showed the tombstone of uh, at the end, yes, uh, definitely the sister of, Valent, uh, of Constantine along with, not only his buddies, right. uh, but uh, that's why it's so, you know, it, it's almost like a love triangle, right? Like he's got this crush on his best friend. His best friend's got a crush on his sister. Obviously, he's not going to do anything with his sister, but it, it makes for an interesting dynamic. So uh, anyway, yeah, seven ninety nine, eighty page giant at your own risk, people at your own risk. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Batman 142 is up next. The Joker Year One Part One. It's from writer Chip Zdarsky. We have Giuseppe Camincoli and Andrea Sorrentino on pencils. 
Stefano Nisi and Sorrentino inks, inks himself. Nisi inks uh, Kamen Coley, obviously. Then we've got Alejandro Sanchez and Dave Stewart on colors and Clayton Cowell on letters. So um, I did appreciate that they didn't try to, to get two artists whose art is going to look similar. Um, they just kind of leaned into it, right? Like actually very dissimilar. And when it get the story gets kind of esoteric at times uh, with the Joker, you know, that's when we're going to see Sorrentino's art. The rest of the time, it's it's Cam and Coley, who it's interesting. Th- this art from Cam and Coley is a little more of an animated style than I'm used to seeing from him. Um, backgrounds are a little bit lighter than, uh, you know, I typically am used to seeing uh, from him as well. Not quite as, uh, as detailed, um, but they are putting out three issues all in in one month in February. So maybe that's the, the reason. Um, but if you look at the cover, if you're watching us on, on YouTube, you can see the cover. That's by Cam and Coley as well. And it's a good kind of representation of the style that he's taking in this book. It, it's almost like he's taking some inspiration from Batman, the animated series and doing a little bit more of an animated style. So the art for me is the, is the highlight though, because when it comes to the actual story, uh, it's very well done. It's very well done in terms of t- telling two narratives, uh, some just a little bit more of the Sorrentino type stuff that feels more present day. And then kind of the flashback to, you know, Joker year one, like the the Joker, not the origin of Joker. He's already Joker, but, but what, what did it take for what, what did it take after he fell in the acid after his skin was bleached white and he was driven insane what did it take for him to become the monster that we know him to be, right? That's the story that Zardarsky is telling. And we're going to see some some surprising people. I'm sure Rocky mentioned some surprising people work with the Joker to kind of get him over his fears and get, sort of help him along the way, right? Start to evolve him into, as I said, the monster that he becomes. So it's, it's very well done from that perspective. Like it's a technically well done comic. The art is beautiful. I didn't like it. Why didn't I like it? Because it's the goddamn Joker, and I'm sick of the Joker. I'm I'm sick of the Joker. Like, yeah, is does this feel like a a part of the Joker, a part of his formative years of of that evolution of, you know, like I said, him falling in the vat of acid and and becoming the arch nemesis uh, of Batman. Yeah, yes, it it feels like a, a part of the story that hasn't been told. Does it need to be told? I kind of think it it doesn't, you know. Uh, I think we, I can't remember who, what we were talking, what character we were talking about recently, but uh, we talked about them revealing a bunch of stuff, and we uh, went back and and talked about Wolverine Origin, the the uh, Paul Jenkins series, and we were like, yeah, you know, it was years and years and years that Wolverine's origin was uh, kind of a mystery. And not to say that Origin wasn't a fantastic story from Jenkins. Uh, I think uh, Andy Cooper did the art, and it was amazing. Could have been Adam Cooper. I always get them mixed up. But anyway, one of the Cooper brothers did the art, um, and it was amazing. It, it was great. But then you lost that that mystery that Wolverine had, um, and, and I don't think it was necessary to to reveal everything that was revealed. I feel the same way about the Joker. I mean, we all know if you. Uh, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you know, I'm over the Joker. I, I never cared for him that much to begin with. And I, I'm just Joker overload, man. For the last, what, 15 years now? 
it's all Joker all the time. I'm so tired of the Joker. And so that kind of leans into, you know, why I, I, I also don't care. I, I, I really don't care about this, the formative years of, of the Joker. So I feel like it's a story that doesn't need to be told. The Joker is just a Joker. That's fine. Um, you know, I, I think DC really shit the bed with the whole three Jokers thing. Um, and I, I'm not going to point fingers at anybody. It just, it was poorly done. You know, I, I don't know who, who, who's to blame. If it was anybody's fault, if it's, it was Jeff John's schedule, if it was editorial, like, I don't know, but the, the idea of there being three Jokers wasn't handled well. And then the Jokers, the three Jokers book took way too long to come out. It didn't really answer any questions. It, it, it created more questions than it answered. And now we're leaning into it even more with this story. I mean, that is my one hope. Uh, as much as I don't want another Joker story, if this does give us any sort of resolution to the three Jokers thing, then I guess, you know, that'll be a positive. Uh, but again, I want to stress this is a very well done comic. No, no, no ill will toward any of the creators. They're doing a great job. It's paced well. There's lots of action. There's lots of angst, which you would expect. I'm just tired of the Joker at this point. So it's going to be a little bit of a slog for me over this next three or four issues, getting all Joker all the time. Um, I mean, Batman hardly shows up here. So I don't know. Anyway, what'd you think? I mean, you, you, you had to, you had to think that that was going to be my reaction, right? I mean, you know how tired I am of the Joker. Uh, well, I, yeah, yeah, I do. I just, uh, you didn't really give me much what your reaction to the story itself, other than the fact you said it was a, a good story. I, because I, I, I agree yeah, with I you. Think, yeah. I think, again, it's hard for me to, to critique the story and the story beats and the plot and what, what have you. Um, because I don't, I don't care. And I'm tired of the Joker. Like, uh, yeah, it just, I could get, I would just end up ranting because there's lots of stuff that doesn't make sense as far as the three Jokers go. Uh, but it, you know, what, what's the phrase that we often like to use lipstick on a pig. I mean, again, no, nothing against chip. He's doing a fantastic job, you know, with pacing and it sounds like the, the like the voice he gives the Joker in these early years and Gordon and Bruce all feel very authentic. I just, it's a slog for me to read these stories because I just don't care about the Joker. Well, I, I actually think that uh, Sardaski here, he does a very good job. And uh, one of the things, now, I know that there, this is going to piss off, this might piss off a lot of people. I don't know. I'm going to be very curious to see what the overall general comic reading public thinks of this, because um, does the comic book community want a more definitive origin for the Joker? Because this this links the Joker's origin directly to, to Batman's. Because this takes this takes place right after Batman Year One. So if you are if you love uh, Frank Miller's Batman Year One, uh, this takes place immediately after that. The Red Hood gang is basically dispersed. The Joker has been captured. He, he's essentially, he's in, uh, he's captured, but he, uh, or part of he's missing, because Batman, he, he Bat the, the Red Hood fell into the chemical pit, Ace Chemicals. Batman thinks the Joker, this, this Red Hood person is dead. The Red Hood gang disperses. There's some copy copycat gangs. The Black Hoods pop up. The Grey Ghost gang cops up. They're copycat gangs trying to replicate the heists of, of the Red Hood gang. And ultimately, the but, but the, this the man who will become the Joker. He's got white skin. He is looking. Uh, he's he, he's looking for direction, and he, he's clearly crazy. He's insane, and he happens to wander into uh, wander into an establishment where he runs into number twenty two, a number a former member of his Red Hood gang. And and as he's as he's following his former henchman around, he sees the Batman, and then he panics. And what what I find interesting. About 
about Trickster Dasky, how he scripts this story is that the Joker is he's he's he thinks that Batman is 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 both beautiful and terrifying, and yet he's he feels like a coward, and the Joker's filled with chaos, but he's scared, and and where where this is. Where the controversy of this story is going to lie is, uh, this is related to issue eight of Jim Sadowski's Batman the Night, where Batman is trained by the smartest man alive, Dr. Caption. And Dr. Caption wants to get revenge on Batman, and he shows up to train the man who would become the Joker. And that's what makes this so captivating. So there's a direct linkage between the Joker and Batman, and that's where I think, I know that we often give spoilers in this review, but I really want people to read this themselves to see, because I, I, think, it, I think it works. Now, I think while I think it works, do I think it's better for Batman stories in the long run, Joker stories in the long run? The jury's still out. Uh, I've, you know, so we'll have to see, but I think this is, uh, this is very well written. I like, it. this focuses on Commissioner Gordon's relationship with the corrupt uh, Commissioner McCloud, who's a temporary commissioner after Commissioner Loeb was taken off the playing field, removed his commissioner at the end of Batman Year One. He's dealing with a corrupt police department. He believes in Batman. No one else, most of the cops in the department are corrupt. Meanwhile, you got that, you got this Joker character on the loose who ends up meeting this Dr. Caption. And so where's that going to go? We'll have to wait to the next issue. Meanwhile, Sardaski does something very curious. He introduces a scene of a Joker, a future Joker, where there's a Commissioner Barbara that t- clearly takes place in the future. And the art is an art shift uh, because the artist, uh, Andre Sorrentino, draws the future, draws the future where Barbara Commissioner's Gordon uh, with Batman's in, in Arkham. And the standard and the normal, most of the pages are drawn by Giuseppe uh, Kind of coley, coley. And so, you know, how does this relate to the Joker and Batman's relationship in the future? Sardaski is juxtaposing the, the, the Joker year one with, with, with Joker and Batman's relationship in the future. We're not dealing with the present, really, although we know from last issue that the Joker is sort of telling Batman his story uh, in, because they're both in jail. I mean, they're both cap- captured together uh, by the, by the, by the uh, by failsafe, being kept prisoner by failsafe and dealing with the Batman of Zerna. So there's a lot of moving parts here. Uh, Chip Sardaski is, is, is weaving a lot of different plots and subplots here, but I think it works. I, I'm invested in this, but I'm really curious. I, my opinion could, draw, could change if this thing goes off the rails, but right now he's, he's got both my curiosity and my attention. So I'm hoping that this will really pay dividends as this story moves forward. I'm sure it's going to sell like gangbusters. People love the Joker. I'm definitely in the minority when it comes to that. So... Uh, all right, here's a here's another way in which I feel like I'm the minority. I'm not a gamer, and I haven't played any of the Arkham Asylum Batman games. Um, I'm try- I was trying to think of the game studio Rock. It's not, it's not no, it's not Rockstar. But anyway, <clears throat> regardless of that, there was a new Suicide Squad game that came out recently. Suicide Squad killed the Justice League. Well, this week we have a Prelude comic called Suicide Squad Kill Arkham Asylum. So this story clearly is in that uh, universe, the the video game universe, I guess, of of the DCU. Um, And I find that to be really interesting, um, the fact that they try to explain some things. So uh, it's written by John Lehman. Uh, If that name sounds familiar, he did Chu, Eisner Award-winning Chu. Uh, The art is by Jesus Arvas. Colors by David Barron, letters by Anne World Design. Um, so yeah, it's Arkham Asylum, not Arkham Tower. It's Arkham Asylum, like it is in the games. And we know in our, uh, you know, the regular DCU, the, the standard DC universe, Arkham Asylum was destroyed, was never rebuilt, what have you. So here, the, they're at Arkham Asylum, and and the, we they go through the trouble of saying, oh yes, it's been rebuilt. They got money from this place, and I got money from Wayne Enterprise, and I got money over here, and they've rebuilt Arkham Asylum, which I I appreciated that they acknowledged that, yeah, Arkham Asylum was destroyed, uh, but 
in the main DCU, but maybe also it was destroyed in the world of the video games. And so that's why they had to explain why it was rebuilt. I honestly don't know because I've never played any of those any of those video games. So be that as it may, this is, uh, again, a, kind of a bridge between those previous Arkham Asylum. Uh, I think there was three. There was like Arkham Asylum and there was something else. And then there was Arkham Knights, I think, video game. And now we've got this um, Suicide Squad kill, kill the Justice League. So how did Suicide Squad get out? How did they escape? All that sort of stuff. It's all explained in this particular book. Um, so being that it wasn't in continuity, uh, there's some stuff that's a little weird, like commissioner Gordon is not commissioner Gordon. He's mayor Gordon. He was formerly the police commissioner ran for mayor, apparently one, uh, Amanda Waller's here in a way. She's the Amanda Waller. We know she's still sort of ignorant and, and dumb and makes stupid decisions all in the name of you know, wanting power and control. She doesn't look anything like any version of Amanda Waller that I've ever seen before, but she thinks that somehow she, she's really fond. She says it like three or four times. Nobody's going to get into Arkham Asylum that I don't want in, and nobody's going to get out of Arkham Asylum that I don't want out. And she doesn't think Batman can get into Arkham Asylum. Yeah, you're just dumb. I'm sorry. You're just dumb if you think Batman can't get into wherever he wants <laughs> to get into. And sure enough, he does. So you know, maybe for people that are fans of this video game series, they're going to get more out of it. This was enjoyable for me, even though I haven't played any of the video games and I'm not familiar with the storyline in the video games. This was okay. Um, you know, it, it feels like even though these are characters we know, Commissioner Gordon, Batman, I'm going to keep calling him Commissioner Gordon, even though he's mayor because he's Gordon. Um, so Gordon, uh, Amanda Waller, albeit a little bit different, um, Batman, the dead shot here is clearly supposed to be the Will Smith version. We've got King Shark. Uh, we've got Harley Quinn. So even though these aren't exactly the, the versions that we know, it, it, we know enough about them, right, that you can just pick this up and you don't need to be a slave to continuity and have read anything that comes before or have played the video games. It feels very new reader friendly. And so I want to give Layman a lot of credit for that. As far as the art goes... Um, it, the art was pretty solid, but I will say ha having Amanda Waller look so different than what she normally looks like, uh, it did pull me out of the story a couple of times. I was like, who's that? Oh wait, that's right. That that's Amanda Waller. So I kind of wish they'd made her look a little closer to how she looks, um, in any of the previous, she has had gone through a couple different iterations in the comics previously as well. But she, I mean, she looks like a, a, a thin African-American male, <laughs> She doesn't look like a woman at all in this, and it kept throwing me for a loop. So anyway, like I said, credit to the creators for making this new rear friendly. It was enjoyable. Ultimately, is it going to be memorable? Did it break any new ground? You know, is it like, oh, my God, so exciting. I can't wait to read the next issue. No, none of that. <laughs> none of that. But it, it's solid. And, uh, you know, if this does get some people who are fans of the previous Arkham Asylum video games uh, or Batman video games, or if – uh, if anybody who's, you know, playing Arkham, Arkham, or sorry, Suicide Squad kills the Justice League as their first video game, if it pulls any of those people in to read comics, I'm all, I'm all for it. Uh, I think it's Rocksteady, I think is the name of the video game company, but I'm sure somebody in the comments would be like, oh yeah, I played the heck out of that because most comic fans have, but again, not a gamer, not familiar with the storyline, but this was, uh, this was solid. What do you think, Rocky? 
I thought that they made a strategic care by making this a prequel. Uh, they, they should have uh, taken a, a page out of the Injustice series. Uh, you've, Injustice was arguably one of the most successful uh, adaptations of a video game, frankly, of all time. And it was probably, it was probably on my, my, the best written comic of the decade of the, of the, 20, of the 2010s. Uh, it was amazing. And uh, they, now if they're gonna make this a prequel, I hope they make a comic book out of Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League. That's far more interesting. Suicide Squad Kills Arkham Asylum. Who cares? We get that all the time. And that, that's all this is. Uh, they're in our, uh, surprise, surprise, Harley and the usual gang of misfits are in Arkham. Uh, Batman shows up. Uh, uh, killer, you know, you know, whatever, killer shark, whatever, bites the head off his ass. So we had some moments of violence. And then at the end, we're told, not shown, we're told in a series of news vignettes which, uh, that chaos is happening around the world, which we know to be the events that lead to uh, Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League. Uh, you got to play the video game for that. But this is a comic book. What, what better way to illustrate that than put the events of Superman of, of Suicide Squad Kills the Justice League, than put some of those events in this story. They didn't do that. Maybe they will next issue, but the Suicide Squad clearly breaks out of Arkham Asylum. I'm sure we'll kill many other Arkham Asylum inmates. And then at the end, they'll be given their mission by Amanda Waller and Lex Luthor uh, to kill the Justice League, who are taken over by Brainiac. That's the premise of the video game. So this is all well and good, and it's kind of cool, but it's really a totally, utterly, you don't have to read this prequel whatsoever. Because surprise, surprise, at the beginning of, Su of uh, Suicide Squad kills the Justice League, Amanda Waller has bombs in the heads of the of same old premise, you know, kill the Justice League or I'm going to kill you. And that's really the premise. And the, there's a lot of controversy surrounding the game, surrounding the death of Batman, surrounding the fact that Wonder Woman is the one that redeems and comes out at the end, but is still ultimately dies and sacrifices herself. And, and the role that Harley plays with that. And, and just, I've watched I've watched the, uh, the deleted scene. It's really cool. It's awesome. It's a, I think it's a fantastic story. And the people that are complaining about it are filled with nonsense. It's great. I wish there was more connections between this and the game other than just being a prequel. And I'd, I'd, I'd like them to take more of a page out of Injustice. But so overall, I think it's not that. I will, if I'm being very critical, I, would, I wish the art was a little bit more. I wish the art was maybe slightly uh, a different style of art, but Herze uh, or Jesus, Jesus Hervos or however you say his name. Uh, I think it's Hervos. Uh, in any event, I thought it was uh, it was okay, but uh, yeah, it's definitely by no means necessary to pick up if you're uh, if you want to play the video game. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I hope it, hope it didn't spoil the video game for anybody there. Uh, yeah, Wonder Woman apparently. So, uh, all right, let's move on. Fire and Ice. Welcome to Smallville finale. This is issue number six. Joanne Starr on the script, Natasha Bustos on the art, colors by Tamara Bonvillan, Ariana Mare on letters. This has been a real roller coaster. At times, I've I've loved this series. At other times, it's felt a little bit underwhelming. Unfortunately, we end up on a little bit of an underwhelming note. Um, it's almost like there's too there's too much going on. You know, we've got the dysfunction of the different supervillains that Fire decided to hire to work at their salon. We've got the relationship between Fire and uh, Charlie. We've uh, Charlie Rhodes. We've got the, the relationship between Ice, and, or friendship, I guess you'd say, between Ice and Rocky Roads. We've got Ma, <laughs> Ma Kent. We've got this uh, Nordic villain slash spirit person, Crave. Uh, and then we've got this mask that's uh, from the island of Kui 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 that's taken over Rocky Road. So there's a lot of stuff going on. It ends up feeling a little bit chaotic. Everything does get wrapped up for the most part. Um, but at the end of the day, it's just like fire and ice, uh, you know, they feel like, Hey, we've saved the day. Now we can move on. We've learned our, our lesson. We've learned whatever it was that Superman sent us to Smallville to learn. But I sort of feel like there was so much going on in the series, like from start to finish, so much was packed in there. Uh, you know, you give credit to the writer for juggling all these different, um, storylines, but because there's all these different storylines, I, I feel like nothing got explored in depth. And so it's just lacks a little bit of, 
of impact. Um, but if anything, I came away from it feeling like, well, you know, Fire and Ice have a really strong friendship and through thick and thin, they're, th that friendship's going to um, survive. So if, if that was, the, you know, all that that the creative team wanted us to get out of this book, then they did a, a fantastic job. But I feel like a little bit um, that it was an opportunity missed because I think it, it, as good as it was, it could have been better. It had the potential to be better. Um, maybe if it was a little more focused, you know, if, they, if it was just one less thread, one less plot thread, um, it probably would have landed a little better. Uh, and the art, the art's been consistent throughout. Um, but just like the story has been up and down for me, the art has been very consistent throughout, but sometimes because of the up and down of the story, sometimes the art in tone feels like it fits the story more than other times. Um, when the story tries to get a little more serious, the artwork isn't, doesn't necessarily, you know, match up with that in, in terms of tone. So, um, yeah, this wasn't at all what I expected it to be. Um, and I, I probably, that's probably, uh, what a lot of people that picked it up are going to end up feeling like, I, I know it wasn't what you expected, Rocky, with your fire and ice. We talked about at the very beginning, but, uh, how do you feel this, uh, finale was? Well, I, you're right. I'm, I'm disappointed in it. It is what it is. It's, it's, uh, it's obviously it's Joanne Sars tape on these characters. Uh, and, and I almost feel because it's, it's clearly meant to be kind of a joke that, you know, again, it's like reviewing a Harley Quinn comic nowadays. Is it even, is it even appropriate to be constructively critical in terms of my expectations? Because there's a, this is once again, there's a thousand different interpretations of these characters. It seems there doesn't seem to be a Bible that DC sticks with for some of these female characters. Uh, but let me just be blunt and express, uh, I'll express my disappointment. Fire and Ice don't develop as characters in this issue, in this entire series. Um, this issue ends with them leaving Smallville. Why? I thought Superman told him to stay in Smallville for reasons which were absurd to begin with, but they, they just left. Uh, Fire and Ice didn't develop as characters. Uh, there's, there's one point at the beginning of the story where Martha Kent is being essentially attacked by Crave and she, she calls and she's actually speaking to her son Superman who can't come and help her uh, against Crave because he's a busy battling a, a Lex Luthor or something or some such thing and she basically Martha Kent Martha tells her son Superman you know don't worry the girls can handle it but why would she think that Fire and Ice have been obscenely incompetent ridiculously incompetent throughout this entire series they haven't shown competency on any level for the previous five issues why now I realize it's a parody it's meant to be a comedy but again they haven't shown any competency all they've shown is to be sort of typical girly girls that are fighting over stupid things. They, they want to train super, uh, they want to reform supervillains in a hair salon in Smallville. And of course, did they reform a single villain? I mean, I guess you could arguably say they did, but did they do so through inspiration by setting an example? No. Unless, of course, you consider being a whore and sleeping with Lobo and being an alcoholic an example. Thank you, Fire. Which, by the way, is in character with Fire, I suppose. But she's not a femme fatale. If you're going to use your power of sex and, and own it and be a femme fatale, but no, they're pathetic. They, they're insecure, both of them. These are like a couple of, these are like a couple of school girls that should be doing YouTube videos talking about Taylor Swift or something because they just these aren't adults there isn't an adult in this comic and where's the character development well we got two lesbians that made up at the end of this tamarind and honey one of them happens to use her powers to win the day fire and ice don't win the day they don't even defeat the villain at the end it's technically tamarind uses her mental powers which are heightened by the female by gorilla broad sister that wins the day fire and ice are just kind of showpieces attractive showpieces but they could be more attractive if the art was more within the DC house style now that's me on my little bit of rant here but this is this story cute is it fun sure it is uh, but does it does it tell me does it advance the characters of fire and ice no they're exactly where they were at the very beginning of the series they're just flying out of smallville now and as they fly out on the final page fire is, is teasing ice that maybe they should open up a place to reform villains which is exactly what they thought to do in the first at the end of the first issue so we're all coming full circle to an idea that i don't think worked in this series so so that's my rant it's over and we can move on <laughs> 
Yeah, so you really did like that's so interesting because I think at one point, if I'm not mistaken, you picked one of the issues as your book of uh, two or three, maybe, maybe not, maybe I'm misremembering, but yeah, clearly did not end on a high note for you. I, yeah, I thought I was a little down. I didn't think it was that bad, but um, anyway, let's move on. Up next, we have Poison Ivy number 19. This is from writer G. Willow Wilson. Art is by Marcio Takara. Colors by Arif Prianto. Letters by Hassan Altsman Elhow. We've had some hints uh, from G. Willow Wilson about the early days of uh, Pamela Isley and uh, tying her origin in more closely to Jason Woodrew, the Floronic Man. And that's uh, continuing here in this issue. Uh, it's interesting because um, Origin of the Species is the name of, uh, of this arc. Uh, and in this first part, it's, it's, it's all flashback. It's all flashback to Poison Ivy's earliest days um, when she was a student at the college. Uh, actually, it even starts with her when she's still in high school trying to get um, a scholarship to college. Um, she wants to go to this specific college where Jason Woodrow is a professor, and she meets some other uh, people that will obviously will know their names. Alec Holland, you know, eventually becomes a Swamp Thing and what have you. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not super, super familiar with Poison Ivy's origin and, and how much G. Willow Wilson is adding to it. So, you know, one of the things I don't like is when people retcon things that are that so clearly the, the timing just doesn't work or whatever. But this feels like it works to me. But again, that could just be because I'm not super familiar with how much Poison Ivy was, uh, you know, how much her origin was tied in with Alec Holland and Jason Woodrow and what have you uh, before. But for me, this was working. It makes sense. Again, consistent characterization for Poison Ivy throughout from G. Willow Wilson. The art by Takara, again, it's been very consistent. Same style that we've had throughout. It does feel organic. It does work in the style of story that he's telling. And I like, you know, what what works best, what I like the most is the evolution that we're seeing um, from for Pamela Isley from this very sort of innocent and in a way very naive young woman to becoming the eco-terrorist that we know Poison Ivy uh, to eventually become. So it, it makes sense. You can understand why she's making, she's making bad choices, right? But you understand why. And you can see that if you yourself were in the same position in that same environment, uh, that maybe you would make that wrong choice as well. Um, and she's aware, she's aware that she's breaking the law. She's aware that the things she's doing are illegal, but in her mind, she's doing it for a greater good, which you know, that's what Poison Ivy is all about. Uh, as a character. So great characterization work from G. Willow Wilson and solid artwork from uh, Takara. So overall, I thought this was, uh, was really good. What'd you think, Rocky? I thought that uh, I got mixed feelings about it. Like you, I, I can't off the top of my head recall exactly what is the, what is my established origin that I recall from DC for Poison Ivy. And and this is clearly, this is, it's funny how we got the first chapter of Joker year one. This is Poison Ivy year one. That's what this is. Um, I, I got to tell you why I'm inclined. Uh, the writing is fine. It's good. I just, Poison Ivy is too pristine. Um, I think this robs Pamela 
from some of her evilness. I'd like her to be more naughty than this. She, so we are to believe, and this is all, everything I want to say, I'm, I'm recapping this issue. She's a straight A student, perfect student, really smart, straight A, completely naive, naive. She's, she's, she's not qualified technically to even be in this undergraduate, in this graduate class, but uh, Jason Woodrow uh, is uh, the other people in the class. Uh, her, one of her uh, other people in the class think that she, uh, Jason Woodrow just likes Pamela Isaac because she's attractive, along with Linda Holland, uh, who is Alec Holland's wife, is also a member of the team, as is Alec Holland. Alec Holland's her, sorry, who will go on to be night, Nightwing, Nightwing, Jesus, Swamp Thing, good Lord. And and so but so she's a very naive young woman and she's manipulated by Jason Woodrow to ultimately rob a biology lab. And then ultimately, I mean, that's really how the issue ends. And and she, I guess at some point, she's going to discover her own agency. And I don't know when she becomes poison ivy, she's, maybe that will affect her mind and it will turn her into like an eco-terrorist that we know she became. But what I, what I would have liked to have seen, quite frankly, is... A, a little bit more of her determination and agency up front to own the fact, uh, to own her villainy. But that's not what this is. This is Pamela Isley as 100%, in my view, more of the victim. But she's, she knows what she's doing, so she knows she's doing wrong. She's, do, she's doing it for the right cause. So I, I guess it's the beginning of, it's the beginning of a, of a criminal career, I guess. It just felt like it, it, she was, she, I just felt like she's getting, she's getting a push from Jason Woodrow, who I think it just sort of, uh, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about it. We'll have to see how it goes. I just, um, I find it interesting also. Now, this is a minor thing, very minor. I always, I never thought of, uh, I think this is the beginning of her, this is before Pamela maybe discovered her sexuality. I always thought of Poison Ivy as a, as a full-fledged lesbian, not as somebody who was bisexual, who could be bisexual, but was really a lesbian. I guess she's not even discovered her, her sexuality yet. I might be wrong on that. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe she's always been bisexual because I always think Harley is. But I thought that was interesting that she's attracted immediately to Jason Woodrow. And that surprised me a little bit because I always thought she was, that throat at all, Pamela always knew that she was uh, uh, a lesbian. But obviously I'm wrong on that. And that's all well and good. Just a minor little observation. Uh, so... You know, it's interesting. It's interesting. So I got mixed feelings about it only because I really like Pamela as a villain. And I don't like, I, I, I would prefer fewer, uh, I would like her to be more of a villain through most of her life, quite frankly, through her own, rather than through manipulation and victimhood, rather that she be, be basically that she comes across her own villainy on her own terms. And maybe she still will. So maybe, um, maybe the jury's still out on that, but that's just my little nitpick on that. So and all in all, I actually like this issue because it, it made me think about Pamela Isley. And I want to give Jay Willow Wilson credit because she's, she's been building up to this for quite a while. And as for, and for a chapter, even if I, if I'm, even if I got mixed feelings about the story, it's been very well done. She's done. A, she did a good job with it here, particularly inter, interjecting, you know, Swamp Thing, Al Collin, Linda Hall and his wife, and Jason Woodrow. I thought that's pretty cool. I think you just got to have a little patience, let her get there. I mean, no, nobody comes, I mean, most people don't come out of the womb as supervillains, you know? So I, I think she, she's going to be evil. She, she'll, she already knows she's doing wrong and she's doing it because she's, you know, it's going to serve the greater good. There's another part of it too, that, you know, you, you, you know, you've said this a hundred times when it comes to Harley prefer her as a villain, same thing with, uh, with poison Ivy. But the fact of the matter is that she's not a villain anymore. DC, you know, because people want to have her in a relationship with Harley. So DC can't have her being out and out villain. So we're really talking more about an anti-hero now. And maybe that's, <coughs> excuse me, maybe that's a reason for this origin, you know, they're going to whitewash it a little bit. They're going to make it seem like she's more a victim of circumstance instead of an out-and-out villain. Um, I, I don't know. But uh, even if she was, e even if that wasn't the case and they're going to turn her into out-and-out-and-out eco-terrorist, I'm fine with the, the progression because uh, it sort of goes hand-in-hand hand with, in my mind at least, why she would be attracted to Jason Woodrow. It doesn't have anything to do 
with Woodrow, whether he, you know he's a male or female, and doesn't really have anything to do with Pamela's sexuality in terms of being attracted to him. She is so about the work. She is so about plants. And uh, in this particular um, story, what Woodrow's trying to do in terms of bridging, you know, the the plant and animal sort of divide and, and looking for the things that they have in common more than the things that they have different. Um, and she, Pamela is so into that, that when she looks at Woodrow, I don't even think she sees male, female. She just sees what she perceives to be his brilliance. Oh, this guy's so brilliant. That's what she's attracted to. She's attracted to the science, the ideas, that sort of thing. That, that's how I took it. And so it doesn't sort of matter in my mind, whether he's male or female. Um, and is he either once he becomes a floronic man? I mean, we're, I know we're getting way off topic here, but th that's, that's sort of how I, how I took it. Um, yeah, very naive, but again, it's very well done. It's very well paced. Um, and we'll see how it all turns out, uh, in the end. So, uh, all right. Up next, we have Shazam number eight. This is, uh, written by Mark Wade. Goren Suzuka handles the, uh, line work. Eve Zervasina does the colors, Troy Petrion letters. I wasn't a big fan of the artwork. Goran Suzuka, he's a very talented artist. Um, I just recently, this last week, I was reading some other work by him. Um, it's so interesting how he can kind of, uh, his style's a bit uh, fluid, if you will. He can, he can sort of change for the tone of the story. Um, but it's just, it's so different than what we're used to seeing with Dan Mora on the book. So that was a little, I don't want to say disappointing, but it was a little jarring, the, the difference, because Again, Goran's art is nothing like what Dan's art is. As far as the story itself, yeah, this is probably the weakest issue of Shazam so far. Um, I'm not going to sit here and say that Mark Wade's phoning it in because he's got you know other projects going on or other things that are taking away his attention. We know he's leaving Shazam because he has other projects that um, that need his attention. Um, but I, you know, he's a professional writer. I still would expect him to, to do his best. And there's plenty of humorous moments here with the space dinosaurs and what have you. Um, but I, I ultimately felt like it just left, it, it was missing something. And I don't even know that I could put my finger on, on what it was. This title has, has had humor and it's been sort it has sort of felt like it's aimed at a little bit of a younger reader. But there's plenty for, you know, longtime fans of Shazam and longtime fans of Mark Wade uh, as well. But ultimately, it, feel, it, it feels like Wade was building to something that maybe we're never even going to get to see because he's leaving the, the title. So, yeah, we get a little bit of a wrap up of the space dinosaur thing here. Yeah, we get a wrap up of the cliffhanger where um, the the house was destroyed last issue. Um but ultimately, it just it just felt very average to me. It just there's nothing memorable. It's not going to be a book I'm thinking about later on. Just sort of thought it was okay, um, and I hope that that's not how this Shazam end runs for Mark Waid. Where I just end up feeling like ah, it's okay because it started off with so much potential, and now it feels like it's a little bit fizzling here um, as he's getting ready to move on to something else. So I don't know. Maybe it's just me. What do you think, Rocky? I, I would agree with you. It's it, it is a feel good issue. There, it's sort of like it, it's it's basically. I mean, last last issue, Shazam and Black Adam had a big fight, and, and the orphan's house was destroyed. Billy Batson's house was destroyed just when his orphan, when his step parents, uh, his foster parents were going to sell that house because they were moving into a bigger house. And and basically, you know, he Shazam basically makes 
Black Adam feel guilty, and uh, because he, Black Adam played a role in destroying his home, where he lived his Billy, lives his Billy Batson with his with the rest of the Marvel family, and uh, Shazam approaches. Zeus along with and Black Adam shows up and Zeus essentially creates this new house but there's something different about the house the house looks bigger everybody comments the house looks a little bit bigger and there appears to be something living in the house uh, and uh, the rooms are bigger so this this perhaps this house now it has some special abilities because Zeus built it uh, now it's interesting because Zeus of course being a Greek god uh, you don't think of Zeus as an architect. So if he builds a house, you know, it's probably more than just a house. So something is probably living in this house. <laughs> you got three eyeballs that pop up at the end and a teaser that the creeper might show up next issue. So uh, it's, it's, it's interesting there. So the fact that the Marvels is that this Foster family, Billy Batson's family might live in a house built by Zeus. That's kind of cool because, you know, we got, the, we got the Rock of Eternity and now got the special house built by Zeus that they live in. Uh, maybe they won't even bother moving to their new location that, uh, that was talked about last issue. Uh, but overall, it wasn't, not a heck of a lot happened, but there was some good character moments here uh, you can very clearly see the difference there's a standoff between black adam and zeus i thought was well done and and i think even though this does it, it does have a sense that this is written maybe for kids this does have sort of uh mark wade has done a good job and he's got a co-writer here uh his co-writer is uh well, Gorn, he's the storyteller listed yeah. as a storyteller that's gorka he's the artist just like dan moore is listed as a storyteller if you notice how there's no artist listed so it's just mark wade giving credit storytelling credit to Goren Suzuka, the artist. But uh, yeah, but uh, overall, I, I think it. Uh, I think that this feels, this reads well. So this is the way actually you write a story that it feels as an adult, I can read this. And even though it might seem a little bit silly, it's adult silly and fun. And we have to remember that Mark Wade is balancing, uh, is doing the balancing act of writing uh, an adult character, Shazam, with the mind of a teenager. And he manages to pull it off very well here. It's just that it, this isn't a Superman comic or a Batman comic, and it's obvious. And it's it's particularly jarring when you see Black Adam, who is such a serious character, face off against Billy Batch and Slap and slash Shazam is they're, they're very, very different people, uh, very, very different characters. And I think deep down, Black Adam knows that because Black Adam does essentially even agree to help uh, help Billy Batson and, and, and says so to Zeus because Black Adam even feels guilty for the role he played. So overall, I thought it was well done, but I agree with you. It's probably more forgettable than not, but uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens with the house moving forward. Yeah, like I said, I just hope it ends on a, an upswing rather than a whimper. Uh, okay, up next we have Superman 78, The Metal Curtain, issue number four, written by Robert Venditti, art by Gavin Goodry, colors by Jordi Belair, letters by David Lampier of A Larger World. Uh, it's very interesting what Venditti's doing here. You know, choosing Metallo as the villain makes a lot of sense, but making him Russian. Here we have him showing up in Washington, D.C., you know, in his full metal suit with uh, the Soviet flag. Uh, again, it just evokes a certain Cold War era feel. And obviously with his uh, kryptonite power source, uh, he's more than a match for, for Superman. Um, we have the uh, Gene Hackman version of Lex Luthor that reaches out to Superman, much like he did in, in the first uh, Superman movie where, you know, he talks to him at that high frequency. Remember, all the dogs are barking and what have you. And he says, hey, Metallo's wearing my suit. And we did see in some early issues Lex Luthor um, going to the Soviet Union. Uh, but is is so was Lex double-crossed by the the, the Soviets? Uh, or is he double-crossing the Soviets, trying to make himself look good? Uh, but e either way, he gives Superman uh, some knowledge about where basically the off switch, the emergency shutout switch is for the Metallo suit. So he presses it. Metallo only has 30 seconds before the suit's going to completely shut down. So he, he flies off, you know, he, he's got to get out of Dodge before the suit shuts down. Um, 
and that's kind of it. There's there's not a whole lot that happens in the issue. It's basically one big fight between Metallo and Superman, but that's okay. Uh, it's okay because it's fun. And although I don't enjoy the Gavin Gudry art as much as the Wilfredo Torres art, uh, he does a great job with the action, with the storytelling and the likenesses as well. You know, they're recognizable as the actors that played, you know, Superman, Christopher Reeve, obviously, and, um, and Lois Lane and Lex Luthor and, and everybody else. So uh, oh, yeah. it's it's just a lot of fun. And for those of us who are old enough to have seen those Superman movies in the theater and, you know, Christopher Reeve, when I picture Superman in my head, live action, I'm always going to picture Christopher Reeve, right? Like he, that's just what I saw in my mind's eye. Not that I didn't appreciate the way Henry Cavill looked at Superman. And I still think poor Henry Cavill, I feel so bad for him. I don't feel like he ever got a script that was deserving of uh, him in the role because I think he'd actually make a great Superman, but uh, that's either here nor there. This particular issue I'm enjoying. I know Robert Venditti is a huge fan of Christopher Reeve Superman as well. And that comes across in the story comes across in um, the way that this is all uh, played out for us in this. So yeah, in my mind, this is basically Superman five, I guess. A lot of people they'll, they'll poo poo on Superman three, one with Richard Pryor. I kind of think that one's fun for what it is, but yeah, nobody is going to say Superman four was anything but a, a steaming pile. So just forget Superman four ever happened. Take the previous Superman 78 series uh, where we had Brainiac and, and we do know because Richard Donner said if he had done a third Superman movie, he would have done Brainiac as a villain. So you can either throw the Richard Pryor one out or not, but either way, you get the Brainiac story that we already had in Superman 78 as the next one. And then this one is the following one that comes on the heels of that. And all I wish is that there's a reality out there somewhere where that actually happened, right? Like Richard Donner got to finish Superman 2 and got to do a Superman 3 with Brainiac as the villain. And then he got to do a Superman 4 with Metallo as a villain. Would have come out like, I don't know, maybe around 1987, 88, like right, right before the fall of the Soviet Union could even work that in right like maybe the, when superman defeats metallo it's one of the dominoes one of the last dominoes to fall that helps lead to the, the collapse of the soviet union and freedom for uh, a lot of those countries um you know we can look back now and say well maybe it wasn't all for the best with, with what's going on in russia and a lot of those countries now ukraine what have you but yeah back then it was a big deal you know mr gorbachev tear down that wall and then the berlin wall came down and yeah, it was uh, for for those of us that are a certain age, it, it, it a very memorable historic moment. So, anyway, Superman seventy eight, the metal curtain, Rocky. What'd you think? Uh, this this is um, I, I just this is just this feels exactly like watching a Superman movie. I just wish it wasn't so predictable. I, I just find it so predictable because, of course, Lex Luthor now he's upset that the Soviets stole his armor because he's really good both on real estate and you don't steal from Lex Luthor because no one gets to kill Superman but Lex Luthor, the greatest criminal mind who ever lived because that's who that's who Lex Luthor is. So he obviously wants to get the armor. He wants to get the armor back, wear it himself and kill Superman himself. That's the plot here for Lex Luthor. I think it's fairly obvious. If I'm wrong, I'll eat my shorts. Uh, but I, I bet you that's what it is. And, uh, but, uh, and that's fine, I guess. I guess. I just um, no. I, that's that's what this is. That's exactly what this is. I just it is really. Uh, I mean, the scenes here just evoke the nineteen seventies 
uh, special effects and evoke Christopher Reeve almost every scene from the from the window that Clark Kent jumps out of. I mean, I just it's like I'm watching the deleted scenes from from the Donner cut of Superman two and some of this stuff. I mean, really, stop. This is a very uh, very uh, true to form of. Uh, adaptation of the sense to feel and the sensibilities of of that of the of the donner superman and in that respect i'm getting exactly what i expect um i just uh damn you know i just uh, i guess i just want I, w- I would just like a little bit more i would have just liked to have loved to have seen a little bit more substance to the plot uh but Robert Venditti is clearly letting uh, uh, Gavin Goodry's art shine here by, by even though the plot's not, you know, it's particularly, it's very by the numbers. I think it's very tropey and I think it's extremely predictable. And, but the art is great. And I think that this is a nice casual read. And for those people, for, uh, for those people that love the classics and who doesn't love the classics, Superman, Don or Superman, this is right up their alley. And frankly, this will make a beautiful hardcover. And I'm sure at some point they're going to collect all the, all the Superman 78 uh, stories and why it's going to be a beautiful uh, hardcover edition worthy of any comic book mantle uh, to, to bring back those feelings. I just, honestly, I don't know, maybe I'm just a, of, of just a modern day, maybe I just got to like relax my brain a little bit more, but I just, I do wish this had a little bit more substance, but, but still, I mean, like it, it, it's exactly what, what it's advertised to be. I just wish there were some surprises here and there just isn't nothing here is surprising to me. And frankly, if this was made into a movie, I think it would disappoint some movie critics because there's nothing new here. But. 100%, 100%. This is not new or groundbreaking or what have you in terms of that. Vin has got a tough job, right? Like it needs to evoke the feel of the Christopher Reeve era of Superman. When you look at those movies, there was, wasn't much surprising about those movies either. Uh, you know, they were very much of their time, and you can make the argument that storytelling wasn't as complicated, characters weren't as complicated. You know, it was white hat versus black hat. You know, mustache twirling villains. There was no real gray area. A lot of that came came later. You know, I mean, think about it. Th- those movies came out before The Dark Knight Returns. Frank Miller. You know. Uh, or Watchmen or the, those kind of things. So, yeah, it's like Venditti is completely capable of doing that. Like, go read his Green Lantern run if you want to talk about some um, sophisticated characterization or what have you. But if we were to do that here, then I think you would have people claim, oh, he's ruining Richard Donner Superman. He's making it, you know what I mean? Like, I get what you're saying. I 100% understand what you're, what you're getting at. And I feel like he's sort of damned if he doesn't, damned if he doesn't. If he doesn't, bring in sort of more complicated sort of storytelling, then yeah, we're going to sit here and go, yeah, it's predictable. But if he does, then you're going to have people that are saying, well, then it's not Superman 78. So uh, at the, at the end of the day, it's enjoyable. And, and that's kind of what I'm, I'm taking it as, but you're hundred percent correct. Like you can see the writing on the wall. Yes. Lex Luthor only wants to help defeat Metallo so he can get his hands on the armor so he can wear it. Cause he wants to be the one to defeat Superman. Yeah. yeah. You're hundred percent right on with all that stuff. Uh, okay, up next we have Neil Before Zod, number two. This is from writer Joe Casey. Dan McDade is the artist. David Barron on colors. Troy Petrie on letters. Um, yeah, this is very much in keeping with who I think the Zods are. They, they're torturing the Coons to try to understand what the Coons are up to, why they're invading New Candor. Um, and, and at the end, um, it's kind of interesting to have Ursa calling out Zod going, where's the man I married? Like, I think Zod's pretty evil, the stuff that he's doing. You know, he's torturing people. He's an evil dictator, despot, whatever. Um, but when he he he, exercise, he wants to exercise a little caution, he's like, yeah, let's wait for the coons to get here. And, and you know, then we can attack whatever. She's like, 
who are you? You're not the man I married being all cautious, whatever it it's. I sort of, I'm of two minds. Like I understand what Ursa is saying, but at the same time, like it's sort of what we were just talking about with, with Superman 78, right? Like over time, don't you want Zod to, to grow and evolve? And he's establishing a planet and he, he wants to protect his planet and protect the people that live on that planet. And, and ultimately, isn't it about like, like why did Zod do the things that he did on Krypton? Right. Cause he wanted Krypton to be the greatest planet, the greatest race of people and, and to be able to, to live their lives and not be threatened by any, you know, anybody or, or any sort of outside threat or influence or what have you. At some point you vanquish all your foes, like you've defeated all your enemies. And the reason you do that is so you can live in peace, right. And do what you want to do. And it's like Ursa saying, nah, no, no, you've got to continue to be an evil bastard and go out and fight and be at war or whatever. Like, is that, is that really what you want to do? Like you want to just fight for the sake of fighting? Like, why do you, why do you fight a war, right? You fight a war to win. You fight a war to win so that the war is over and you get, you accomplish your goal and you get whatever it is you wanted. That was the reason you fought the war. But it's like Ursa saying, no, like you fight war for the sake of fighting the war. Like it's a goal in and of itself. And I, I don't really buy that sort of thinking, um, but maybe that's who she always thought Zod was. I never took Zod as that either, right? Like, it's not so different. There may be some of you out there old enough to remember the Emperor Doom um, graphic novel from Marvel back in the day where he takes the Purple Man and he puts him in this, like, giant diamond crystal thing and he, he sort of broadcasts all, the Purple Man's power all over the world. So Doom basically mind controls everybody on the planet and he makes this utopia and guess what? At the end, Doom like sort of allows himself to be defeated by the Avengers because he realizes how boring it is. Like he got what he always wanted. He's the ruler of the world. Everybody does everything he says, uh, but it's boring to him. So uh, kind of the same thing, you know, maybe Ursa's uh, just bored. I, I don't know. Um, this has not been the series two issues in has not been at all what I sort of thought it would be uh, when talking to Joe Casey. But there are a lot of things that we still don't know, still haven't been uh, revealed. So I guess we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, interesting issue. Sets up an interesting dynamic going forward. I mean, the last issue we've got uh, Ursa saying, telling Zod, yeah, if you don't return to your evil ways, you're going to kneel before me. I was like, wait, what? What? Is Zod going to kill Ursa? I'd be, I'd be, I'd be kind of okay with that. I mean, you want to talk about a, a nagging wife. I mean, she takes that to a whole new level here this guy look at everything he's accomplished he's got his own goddamn planet right his own planet that he will defend and destroy anybody that and that's not good enough for her that's not good enough he's got a whole goddamn planet that he's the ruler of that's not good enough for her she's uh browbeating him so i'm down i'm down if she wants if he if he ends up snapping her neck or what have you expect that from zod how about this? How's this for me returning to my evil ways? Snap. I don't know. I guess we'll see. What do you think, Rocky? Uh, well, I'm happy to report that uh, we're on the same, definitely on the same page in this one. And I'm so glad to hear you use the phrase nagging wife. Uh, there's no question here that Ursa here is a piece of work. Now, you know, it's funny what I thought was going to happen here, but what should have happened here if I was playing script doctor is it would fit. If this was a black label series, uh, Zod would have bitch slapped Ursa when she, when she went on her rant and they would have had, they would have had hate sex. 
right there <laughs> in front of the broken throne that Ursa just destroyed, and they would have reconciled immediately, and, and Zod would calm her down. Because that's really what it is. I don't think, it's really odd. I agree with you. This is an interesting issue. On the one hand, if I'm being really critical, well, what, what, what do I expect of Ursa? Well, you know, last issue, when Lord Zod, when the son that Zod banished, uh, when Lord Zod threw a fit and got angry at his dad for not being aggressive enough, uh, Ursa reluctantly sort of went along with it, and now Ursa's throwing the same fit that her son did. And and the thing is, Ursa, she knows full well what Zod has accomplished. It, it's from Ursa's own dialogue that we get a recap of how much Zod has accomplished. It's from Ursa that she she basically, she states that Zod single-handedly escaped the Phantom Zone, and single-handedly rescued, uh, rescued Lord Zod and Ursa from the Zone. He decimated the Dominion City, outmaneuvered the Elf family that led to the creation of New Kandor. He populated New Kandor with the inhabitants, half the inhabitants of Kandor that were almost, uh, were, that were initially exterminated by Rogelzar. He founded a New Kandor. He's built a weapon of mass destruction that will protect New Kandor. And she's sitting here telling him that she's, she wishes that he would hurry up and just be more, like, it, it means, it's like arguing over a timetable. I, I don't think, I, I think they're on the same page, but Ursa just wants them to be a galactic tyrant now instead of maybe, you know, a few weeks from now. It's clear Zod has a plan. It's clear that he's a strategist. It's clear that he's brilliant. He wipes out the Kuns. He's attacked by the Kuns. He's a, they're attacked by a, a pirate ship, by pirates that take over a Kun starship. I mean, what the hell more else do you want from a tyrant? I mean, to me, I'm giving, I'm giving Zod an A-plus mark. The only problem he has, he's got a bitch of a wife who's on his ass saying, why don't you do more? And I'm thinking, good God, more? What's more, woman? I mean, this is a crazy woman. And then at the end, she's sitting there with her boots on him. I don't, when she's got her, when, when Zod is practically kneeling before her, I'm thinking Zod, like, this is how twisted I am thinking about Zod. I think Zod is turned on right now. I think he likes his, I like, he, I think he loves seeing Ursa like this. This is a woman he married. I think they've got a massively dysfunctional, uh, violent, physically violent relationship. And I think that, you know, again, if this was a black label, I'd expect some a fairly aggressive scene of intimacy that would take place uh, at the end of this issue or right in the middle of it. And so I'm intrigued. I don't know if it, I don't know if I necessarily agree with Joe Casey taking such an aggressive approach to this because I don't know. I'm trying to imagine how much more evil is, is Zod going to be. We saw Ursa torture to death a cunt, uh, warrior, a prisoner. Well, what like uh, does it make any sense that, that Zod would be even more crazy and attack, attack, attack without a plan when he when he was a uh, leader general of, of Krypton? Uh, he was very aggressive. But he understood well the importance of strategy, and he could—he knew he planned when he was uh, addressing all of crypt, the uprisings on Krypton in the, in the months and years before the, its eventual destruction. As Krypton was going through chaos, and in that uh, Krypton Chronicles that that, that we uh, uh, that uh, I think Robert Vendetti wrote that actually. Uh, didn't he? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so he, he uh, Robert Vendetti wrote it. And in any event, I, I, I just think that Zod here is—he's uh, a—I think as a strategist, he's brilliant, uh, but he just happens to be very, very. Uh, prone to even when he's got a wife who's a clearly a sadist and um but i don't know ursa very clearly here is playing a game zod admits that something is wrong he says he's experiencing something he's reaching a pinnacle and he does he's not sure what he's going through but very clearly i mean i mean i'm like you i'm thinking to myself what the hell what what more could zod do i mean how is joe casey going to make zod even more tyrannical than he's been in these first two issues and uh and if he's going to be that tyrannical then he better bloody well invite his son or zod back because it seems to me that they both want to be like their son wants them to be but in any event this is a very curious issue and i enjoyed it i liked it but i'm i'm a little bit at a loss as to you know how dysfunctional is this relationship between ursa and zod i don't know it, but i gotta admit if i was a tyrannical bastard i would want a wife, a wife like ursa because she does seem to know him very very well <laughs> i mean uh i don't know what's happening to me I, i'm changing whatever i mean is, isn't it called growth zod's not allowed to have personal growth i guess he's always got to you know st uh, i guess i mean they're comic characters right yeah. You got to have the illusion of change or what have you. So I don't know. I guess we'll see. Uh, all right. Up next, I'm just going to mention this real briefly. We have Red Hood, The Hill, uh, Zero, Issue Zero. It's written by Sean Martinborough, 
Tony Akins and Moritz Hat are the, are the pencilers. Stefano Guadiano handles the inks. Paul mounts on colors. Troy Petri on letters. This is just a reprint issue. Um, it collects issues 51 and 52 of the most recent Red Hood series that ended, God, I think it ended in either early 2022 or late, uh, or sorry, early 2023 or late 2022. Um, now it's been rumored or it's, you know, we have known for a long time that Sean Martinborough is going to write um, a series for Red Hood where he's in the hill, which is a neighborhood um, in, uh, in Gotham City that's got a lot of immigrants and persons of color and, and what have you. So this is kind of a lead into that. I'm sure they put this together and reprinted the last two issues that Martinborough wrote because it leads directly into his series, which is going to be coming out pretty soon, sometime this spring, I think. So we covered those issues back when they came out. Um, so I don't, I don't really have anything to add to that. These are okay. Um, um, jury's still out on, on how well it's going to be done. Um, it, it, what was interesting was when Martin Burrow came on and wrote those last two issues, they felt so different from the issues that had been written before. I think Scott Lobdell had written the entire series up to that point. They felt so different in tone. It's hard to say, you know, it felt very jarring. So it's hard to say how much of this Hill um, story that Martin Brito is going to write is going to, how well it's going to work. I guess we'll have to wait and see. So uh, anything to add, Rocky? Uh, yeah, I I was actually, full disclosure, I was going to criticize this issue because it ends with saying Red Hood Hill number one is on sale February 6th. Uh, it, it says that on the last page. Well, this comes out on February 6th. So is obviously the, the Red Hood the Hill number one, this is, not Red Hood the Hill. This is a reprint of something else. So I'm, I'm, I was actually confused by that. So, um, yeah, and I, I didn't, I don't remember reading this before. It's funny you said we reviewed it. I don't remember anything about this. Uh, I thought this was a brand new story, and I thought it was, I thought it was not bad. But I thought it, it's stale dated. It goes back to Joker War. It talks about the Hill. It's not bad. It introduces this character, characters that we, we might see again. Uh, the, the white, this white Kanye character, Thomas Mazel, who creates, you know, he sells running shoes and he he turns crazy and he decides he wants to take over the. I don't know, take over the merchandising of his own, selling of his own shoes. He's sort of like a, he's literally, they call him a white Kanye, a white Kanye. And, and he deals with drug dealers and he sells shoes and merchandise to drug dealers. And the Red Hood takes them out. Okay. Uh, and again, there's this other character called, I think, Strikes, her name, Dana Harlow. She's got a, she's got a reporter sister named Denise, who's a reporter. And uh, she ends up being kidnapped and, you know, shenanigans ensue and it all comes to a head i thought it was well done i thought i thought sean uh, martin bureau is a, is a good writer i thought the the, the dialogue's good i think the art uh, tom akiro and martad as pencilers i think did a good job of the art um, my commentary is look uh, this was a well-written story it's so done in one leave it alone i i, I like jason todd he's more interesting when he's with uh when he's with artemis i love the artemis bizarro team up when uh, red hood and the outlaws that's what i like bring bring back red hood and the outlaws i'm i'm interested in that i will not be collecting a red hood uh, series. Um, I, I just want a character to be a redundant. He's just completely redundant. Uh, I just f don't find him interesting when he's by himself. And I don't. I don't need Red Hood in another different supporting cast. Bring back Red Hood. Make him stand out. He stood out better when he was when he had Artemis, when he had Bizarro, or even if it's, but for sure Artemis. And have an eclectic group of or a rotating cast of interesting people uh, for for Red Hood. And but giving him his own section of Gotham. I, I guess I, I can understand it. I, I suppose. I mean that's clearly why it's called Red Hood the Hill. The Hill being a, a generally considered to be a, a I guess a safer part of Gotham flowing out of joker war so i guess i understand the premise uh he's a more aggressive batman but um i think that they're going in the wrong direction with jason jason todd i i, I 
Mind you, I might be in the minority on that because they, they tried Jason Todd, Red Hood, and the Outlaws through two different iterations in the New 52 and then coming out of that because first it was Jason Todd, Artemis, and, and Arsenal, and then it was Bizarro and, and, and Artemis with Red Hood. But I, I love those series, man. I just love that because they're just different kinds of stories. It didn't have Artemis in it at the beginning, right? It was Starfire and Arsenal. Right, right. Yeah. 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 And then the second iteration, I think, was Artemis, Red Hood, and Arsenal. And then they took Arsenal away and brought in Bizarro. <laughs> oh. Yeah. But yeah, in any I event, that- I yeah, I don't disagree with you. Um, the first issue does come out next next week, actually, the 14th, Red Hood, uh, The Hill, number one, Sean Martin Burrow's writing. So most people know Martin Burrow as an artist, actually. I wish he was doing the art. I know it's asking a lot to, to write and draw. Um, but Sanford Green is going to be the artist on the first couple issues. And I just don't see his style of art suiting a, a Red Hood book. But uh, I guess we'll see how it all how it all plays out. So anyway, uh, last book we're going to talk about here, Birds of Prey, number six, written by Kelly Thompson, art by Leonardo Romero, colors by Jordi Belair, letters by Clayton Cowles. Uh, in typical Kelly Thompson fashion, the storyline that has been happening with Sin and this, I don't even know what you call this, evil spirit or whatever, the Amazonian evil spirit that's, in possession of the Gera. Um, it's not, this is not wrapped up in a nice, neat little bow, right? Like it's much more complicated than that. Speaking of complicated storytelling. So the, the current iteration of birds of prey, they're not successful in sort of purging that, that evil spirit or what have you from sin, but they do set up a situation where sin is able to sort of subjugate that spirit, if you will. So basically it's kind of like one of those things like where, you know, if I go, we go. So they could destroy the Megara spirit, but they would also, because the spirit's already bonded to sin, they would destroy uh, sin as well. So sin sort of uses that as leverage and says, Hey, look, if you want to live, you got to let me be in charge. It's my body that you, you know, you're possessing. We got to you know work together, whatever. So it, it resolves the story, but not a hundred percent, right? Like it's resolution. It's the end of that arc. But it leaves the door open to come back, obviously, you know, not so dissimilar from what uh, Tom Taylor did in Beast World, right? Or we know it's the end of the story, but not really the end because we know Raven's not who she pretends to be. Um, and so it's a little bit of a pyrrhic victory for uh, the Birds of Prey, but it works very, very well. It's, you know, well done in terms of the pacing and the character voices and what have you, uh, like it's been throughout. Um, I do think, and I've said this before, I do think the Romero art, it's not your typical superhero art. And so it doesn't have that real dynamism that superhero art does. And because of that reason, I think is the reason that Jordi Belair chooses it to color, uh, to color line work in a little bit more of a muted palette. And again, it just, the artwork just doesn't jump off the page. Like you would expect something like a Red Hood and the Outlaws or a Birds of Prey or a Sinister Six where you've got those bright colors and it just pops. This is not that book. Uh, but I think it could be that book with a different artist. Uh, and I think Jordy would color it in a different way for, for a different artist. So it, I hope, again, nothing against Romero. I think he's a very talented artist, very strong uh, transitions and, and narrative storytelling. But I, I'd like to see something different just to see if it's better. Maybe it'd be worse and I want Romero back. Um, so I guess we'll see because there are some hints of more adventures. But it does seem like uh, the Birds of Prey – roster 
may be sort of fluid in the hands of, of Kelly Thompson because we get a tease at the end of this issue. It says new mission, new team, because what uh, Black Canary learns in talking to um, the future version of, uh, of Maps uh, Maguchi is that the reason that Batgirl hasn't been a member of the Birds of Prey so far <coughs> is because this future Maps Magushi uh, Meridian is what she calls herself. Um, in all the different iterations of the future that she looked at on this mission to go and rescue Sin from Themyscira, Batgirl, Barbara Gordon, she always died. She always died. She couldn't find a way to have her be part of the Birds of Prey um, and have Barbara Gordon live. And so now Meridian thinks there's actually somebody out there in the multiverse um, in the timeline, what have you, that's, that's trying to kill Barbara Gordon. And so Black Canary hears that, you know, whether uh, Barbara Gordon is an active member of the Birds of Prey or not, that's, she's still a member, you know, she's still part of the Birds of Prey family. There's no way Black Canary is going to let that slide. So new mission, find out who's after Barbara Gordon um, and stop them basically. So again, perfect time to bring on a new artist to try, you know, try out a different art style. Um, and I mean, I'm intrigued. Who's going to be the, the members now other than Black? We know Black Canary is going to be there. There's going to be all new members. Um, I feel like at least Cassandra Kane at the very least should stay the same. She's got some pretty strong connections to Barbara Gordon. Might we see Stephanie Brown? Um, I, I kind of think we won't have Big Barda there. Probably not Zealot either. Um, which, I you know, Zealot, she's been good. I like the, the voice that... Uh, Kelly Thompson has given her, but I, I, I don't mind so much if Zealot uh, isn't in the next arc. Bobby really disappointed if Barda's not there because I love the way Barda talks and the way Barda acts uh, in the hands of, of Kelly Thompson. Harley Quinn, yeah, see ya. Don't need her at all. Um, you got to imagine Maps is going to be around. I mean, Meridian, she, she pops in and out. She's not really like an active member of the team, but who else might we see? Again, I think Cassandra Kane should probably be there. Um, maybe... Huntress? Mm, I don't know, but I guess we'll see. I, I do hope that we don't spend a whole nother issue, though, recruiting, because while I do sort of enjoy those once in a while, I don't want to, you know, and, and I, I like the idea of a rotating team, you know, every arc, um, but I don't need the first issue of every arc to be a recruiting issue. It'll get kind of old in my mind, but I trust Kelly Thompson. I'm a huge fan of her, um, so I guess we'll see where it goes. What do you think of this finale for the first arc, Rocky? Uh, well, uh, Kelly Thompson was uh, she was quite uh, active on on Twitter or X, and she was saying early on because she got she got criticized for not having Barbara Gordon on the team immediately, and we all made comments on that. Even you and I did that. Where's Barbara Gordon? And uh, she did say she was telling people from issue one to be patient, be patient. She's listening, and she has. And Barbara, there's a reason, and it, there's, a, there's actually an in-story reason. Somebody is suspected, according to Maps, or who's Meridian from the future. Somebody who's who's u apparently u utilizing Meridian's time travel tech wants to kill Barbara Gordon and apparently Barbara Gordon died up to 11 times and Meridian kept going back and forth trying to they, they form different teams there was more than one different makeup of the team it, it's implied going into Themyscira to rescue Sin but in 11 times both Barbara and Sin died and this was uh, you know so it's, it's interesting I, I sort of like that idea uh, and uh, and who you know, makes me wonder who would want to kill Barbara Gordon, and it actually gives Barbara Gordon a little bit more gravitas. Uh, and and I, I I actually do like Starfire. I, what's that? Starfire, my Barbara Gordon. 
yeah, yeah. Starfire, and uh, I would like to see Starfire. That would be cool. Uh, but this, what one th- one of the things that I find interesting here is I like what they did with Sin with this Megara with Sin with Megara sort of possessing half of the body of of Sin. It makes Sin, I think, more interesting. Actually, I'm surprised how much I like that idea. It just adds once again. I have to say to the total redundancy of Red Canary. If I had my way, Red Canary would be long would, would be very short of this world. I would have Red Canary on the team next issue and have her killed off immediately. And then just you know have a soaring issue, have a funeral, you know, bury the brown belt. Who I mean, come on, what you need is somebody who you know saves guitar stores from being robbed. Uh, she's a redundant character, but in any event, that's my rant on Red Canary. I like Sin here. I, I like that Wonder Woman wrapped her lasso around Sin and, and, and questioned the Megara demon, making sure that, you know, how, how are Sin how are and Megara going to work together? There's all kinds of potential in terms of what happens when you take somebody with the skill of Sin with the, with, the, with the mind and the powers of a demon. That's pretty cool. I like that idea. I like that concept. And I like the idea of a time-traveling villain who wants to potentially not just kill Barbara Gordon, but maybe all the birds of prey. We don't know what Kelly Thompson has in mind, but because I'm familiar enough with Kelly Thompson, I enjoyed her Captain Marvel run. I, I'm five issues short of reading to the end of her Captain Marvel run. I'm behind, but I think I think she's a great writer. Uh, you and I reviewed the call. I think that's a, a great series, a f- five issues, uh, five issue series. It's pretty good. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to see what Kelly Thompson has in store for us with with Barbara Gordon. And uh, it's uh, there's always great when you have tension between Black Canary and Barbara Gordon. It usually makes for great stories. And who's gonna be on the team? I don't know, but I trust Kelly Thompson to think outside the box like she did with Barbara Gordon here. And it just it's more interesting and it's more fun. And it's a reward to the fans knowing that Kelly Thompson always had Barbara Gordon in her mind and this shows that she did and that she knows what she's doing. And for those that have no faith in her, shame on them. Agreed. Uh, Okay, that's going to do it for the books we're going to talk about in detail. There are a couple of other single issues. We've got Batman Scooby-Doo Mysteries Volume 3, Number 2, and then Scooby-Doo Where Are You? uh, Issue 126 is also out this week. In terms of collections, we've got the Night Terrors hardcover. Uh, If you're glutton for punishment, you want to pick that up, feel free, but uh, not not anything I would recommend reading. Uh, We've got an omnibus for the question that connects uh, or collects rather the very classic Dennis O'Neill or Denny O'Neill and Dennis Cowan run. That's volume two of that. Peacemaker tries hard uh, from Kyle Starks with art by Steve Pugh that Rocky and I really, really loved. Highly recommend that. Uh, Definitely would say pick that up. That's fantastic. Uh, Creature Commandos presents Frankenstein, Agent of Shade, book one. Trade paperback, that collects a lot of the um, New 52 stuff. Uh, We've got Static Shadows of Dakota hardcover, a recent series uh, in the Milestone universe that finished up that you can read. Also, we've got Monkey Prince, volume one, Enter the Monkey trade paperback, another uh, series that we really enjoyed. Uh, Gene Nguyen Yang is the uh, writer with Bernard Chang on art. And then finally, Icon versus Hardware. That series also set in Milestone. Well, it was a little up and down, but uh, I am a fan of those characters. So uh, if you're a fan of Milestone, I would recommend picking that up. So those are the collections that are out this week. Uh, book of the week, Rocky? Easy choice, hard choice. What do you got? Yeah, okay. So my book of the week, I would have to go with, and I'm just I'm thinking long and hard about this now. I think I'm going to... Um, uh, for the one that sort of got my boat a little bit, but in, in I don't know, I've got mixed feelings about it. It's between General Zod and Batman 142. Um, but I'm going to, uh, I, I'm going to have to go with Batman, uh, with, with Batman, 
uh, just is edging it out because I, I think I'm intrigued by this first chapter of Joker Year One. I'm really intrigued by it, and I'm hoping Chip Sardaski does something uh, does something very interesting with it. And I have a theory as to how he's going to work in the uh, three Joker uh, scenario, uh, but uh, we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. So, but I, I enjoyed Batman enough that it's it's going to make my pick of the week this week. What about yourself? Yeah, well, not me picking Batman. Uh, which if anybody listened to my review, I'm sure you realize that. Uh, so that's good. Uh, ultimately, I'm going to go with the book that I enjoyed the most this week was Poison Ivy. I thought Poison Ivy was far and away the best book that was out this week. Um, again, very interesting what uh, G. Willow Wilson's doing. I feel like she's being very true to the character, being additive to the origin of Poison Ivy. So, yeah, I thought it works really, really well. Uh, and yeah, I didn't even consider any other, any other picks other than, uh, than poison ivy this week. So, uh, well, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Uh, hope you're enjoying the spawn daily over on the comic source YouTube channel. Uh, or maybe you're listening to the audio only on the uh, comic source podcast feed. We appreciate the support. seems like you guys are really enjoying it. Um, uh, my review with, uh, my interview rather with Todd McFarland, like 500 views on, on YouTube, somewhere around there. Uh, speaking of Todd, he's doing a charity auction on his whatnot channel coming up on February 12th, uh, at 2 PM Pacific, 5 PM Eastern. He's literally going to his warehouse and he's just going to start pulling stuff out comics art. He said, there's a couple of pieces of original art there. He's going to do some sketches. There's a bunch of toys, um, there's some spawn jackets. He's going to auction all that stuff off for charity. hundred percent of the proceeds will go to charity. So, uh, yeah, tune in for that. If, uh, if you're so inclined, a couple other interviews that are coming up, uh, this week and next. So be on the lookout for that. If you want to be sure not to miss any of our audio only content on the comic source, uh, channel, just go to wherever you get your podcast, whatever platform or app you like to use, do a search for the comic source and subscribe. Uh, if you want to be sure not to miss out on any of Rocky's content on his YouTube channel, Comic Boom, just do a search on YouTube. You know what to do once you find the channel, Comic Space Boom, exclamation point. Subscribe, ring the notification bell, like this video, leave comments. Uh, we like to interact with people. Give us your thoughts on these books, uh, what you thought of them, what, what's your book of the week. Uh, again, we love to, to have conversations in the comments with listeners and uh, people that view us on YouTube. So we appreciate the support as always. That's going to do it, and we'll talk to you next time. Catch you later. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.